1: Our first great question is from 1 Kings 13. Before I give you the Ken Wetmore paraphrase of that chapter, we need to set it up. King Solomon has died after allowing his kingdom to slip into the worship of idols. God isn't pleased watching his leader lead people away from him instead of toward him. So he picks a young man named Jeroboam and makes him king over 10 of the tribes of Israel. He promises to give Jeroboam an everlasting dynasty if he keeps his 10 tribes away from idolatry. However, Jeroboam immediately becomes worried that his 10 tribes will leave him since they have to go to the one tribe he doesn't control, the tribe of Judah, to worship God in the temple at Jerusalem. He builds two golden calves and puts them in the opposite ends of his kingdom and tells the people they can worship God at those altars that he's built. God isn't pleased. And this is where the story in 1 Kings 13 begins. A man of God from Judah was sent at God's command to one of the places King Jeroboam has set up an idol and altar. He arrived just as Jeroboam was about to burn incense on the altar. Speaking the words God had given him, he shouted out, Oh, altar, altar, this is what God says. A child named Josiah will be born into David's dynasty. On you, O altar, Josiah will sacrifice the priests from the pagan shrines who come here to burn incense, and human bones will be burnt on you, making you unsuitable for further use. To give further proof he was speaking on behalf of God, he said, God is giving you a sign that I'm speaking the truth. This altar will be split in two, and the sacred ashes will fall out onto the ground. King Jeroboam had heard enough. Pointing at the man of God, he shouted, arrest him. But instantly the king's arm was paralyzed and the altar split into spilling the sacred ashes on the ground, just as God had said would happen. The king screamed with fright to the man of God, please ask the Lord your God to fix my paralyzed arm. Showing grace, the man of God asked the Lord to fix the king's arm and immediately the king could move it. The king said to the man of God, you need to come to my palace and eat with me and I have a gift I want to give you. No way, not even if you gave me half your kingdom was the man of God's response. I will not eat or drink anything in this place because God told me not to and he told me to go home by a different route than I came. Immediately, the man of God headed home by a different route. Now, an old prophet lived nearby and when his sons came home and told him everything that had happened, including the part about not eating or drinking things, he asked his son which way the man of God had gone. They told the old prophet, and he had them quickly saddle his donkey and took off to catch up with the young prophet. He found him resting under an oak tree. The old prophet asked, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? That's me, was the answer. Well, please come home and eat with me, said the old prophet. The young prophet quickly answered, Can't do it. God told me not to eat or drink while I'm here and to head back a different way than I came. You're a prophet? I'm a prophet too, and an angel of God came to me and told me to bring you to my house and share a meal with you, said the old prophet. Now, the truth was the old prophet had told a complete and utter lie. So what happened? The man of God went to the old prophet's home and shared a meal with him. While they were eating and drinking, God sent a message to the old prophet to deliver to the man of God. The Lord says you did not obey him. You didn't follow his instructions, but instead came back and ate and drank. For that reason, your body will not be buried in your family grave. The man of God finished eating and then borrowed a donkey for the ride home. As he was heading home, a lion attacked him and killed him. His body lay in the middle of the road with the donkey and lion standing nearby together. People passed by quickly and spread the news, and soon the old prophet heard about it. He said, it's the man of God, and it happened because he disobeyed what God told him to do. So God sent a lion to kill him. The old prophet went and collected the body, which had not been eaten by the lion. In fact, the lion and donkey watched the prophet and his sons collect the body. The old prophet mourned over the man of God and buried him in his own tomb. He told his sons to be sure to put his bones next to the man of God's when he died. He explained, this man's prophecy will absolutely come true. Even this didn't cause Jeroboam to change course. And so in 2 Kings 23, that chapter documents that about 300 years later, King Josiah did exactly what the man of God had prophesied. As King Josiah was opening tombs and taking bones out to be buried, he came upon the tomb that held the man of God and the old prophet. And when he was told the story, he left that tomb alone. Well, you've had a little time to think about the story in 1 Kings 13 and reflect on how you would answer our first great question. In case you forgot, the question is, In 1 Kings 13, the man of God from Samaria lies to the man of God from Judah with lethal consequences. How can he be a man of God and do such terrible things? The Bible doesn't shy away from differentiating between true prophets and false prophets. So it implies the lying prophet is a true prophet in relationship with God. How can his title and behavior be reconciled? How is it possible to be both a fully committed God follower and, at the same time, believe and share things that are not true? As we come up with the answers to this great question, there's a basic assumption I work from that I want you to know. Every story in the Bible is purposeful. In other words, God wanted every story recorded in the Bible to be there, and it's there to teach us something. The messier the story, sometimes the more important the lesson. And that's the case with this story. As some of you may remember, I haven't always been a pastor. Early on in my career, I spent a few years in broadcast news as a reporter and anchor. When you work as a reporter, you're constantly being lied to. I expected to be lied to by politicians, but what really took me by surprise at the beginning was when people I perceived to be good people lied to me. I remember one time when Rochelle and I moved into a new house, there were some trash cans out between our home and the neighbor's home. I wasn't sure who they belonged to, so I went and knocked on the neighbor's door. Our new neighbor came to the door, took one look at me, and I saw her flinch. This wasn't unusual because I wasn't really the reporter you wanted showing up at your house. I was the guy who did the hard-hitting pieces that you loved until you were the subject of them. So I attempted to put my neighbor at ease. Hi, I'm Ken. I'm your new neighbor. I'm living right next door. I see there are trash cans in between our homes. Are they yours or ours? The woman said, just a minute. I'll be back. Five minutes later, she came back all dressed up with makeup on. She took a dramatic step outside the door, waved her hand at the trash can, and said, those are not our trash cans. I immediately had a strong feeling she wasn't being completely honest because I figured she thought a dead body or something incriminating had been found in them and that I was there to report on it. So I responded, no, seriously, it's okay if they are yours. This isn't a news story. I really am your new neighbor and I don't want to take those trash cans unless they belong to the house that we're renting. Unfortunately, I think she was a little too far in. I think she preferred to make a trip to the store to buy new trash cans than admit that the trash cans were hers. Or who knows? Maybe she wasn't lying about all four of those trash cans. By the way, she and her family were wonderful neighbors. Now, that's a mild example. The truth is the truly hurtful lies weren't when I was in broadcast news. They were the ones I've heard and been told over the nearly 20 years I've been working for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There's stories I'm not going to share, where people I looked up to and respected told lies that hurt me and my family financially and emotionally. The hard part to believe is that they were lies told by good people. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but I know that there is no other way to say it. I'm convinced many of those people who purposefully lied loved Jesus and were good people. I have to say that because if I'm totally honest, there have been times in my life that I've lied, and I want to believe that God's grace still has me, and I'm a good person who just made a bad decision. Here's my point. Good people, people who love Jesus, lie, and it's all throughout the Bible. Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife. Jacob lied to get Esau's birthright. Moses lied about who was bringing water out of the rock if you look at that text carefully. David lied about cheating with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband. Peter lied about knowing Jesus and the list goes on and on and on. This doesn't make it okay to lie. It doesn't make it okay at all if you're a Christian to lie. In all these cases there were incredibly painful consequences. What it does tell us is that followers of Jesus make mistakes, and God's grace is big enough for that. And as his followers, we have to have grace as well. So, let's talk specifically about the story in 1 Kings 13. It's important to understand a few things about this story. The only person called a man of God in this story is the young prophet The Bible never refers to the old prophet with that designation. In fact, there are only about a baker's dozen of people who receive that biblical designation all throughout the Bible. They include Moses, Elijah, Elisha, David, and in the New Testament, Timothy. So, this young prophet found in 1 Kings 13 is included in some pretty impressive company. The Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary identifies the old prophet as a false prophet. And that's a point of view shared by some other commentators. That being said, many theologians dispute that this man was a false prophet. They point out that he's never identified as a false prophet by the Bible and that later in the story, God speaks through him. They argue that he was a legitimate prophet of God who went rogue. We see this out of other prophets in the Bible, like Balaam and Jonah. In some ways, saying that he was a false prophet gives us an easy out that as humans, we like. People are either good or bad. We like strong distinctions, and it naturally makes us uncomfortable when life is not black and white, but is nuanced and shaded. We want the old prophet to be a bad guy, not a follower of God who does something terrible that leads to the death of another follower of God. Again, the Bible never tells us if he was a false prophet, and so it's going to be up to you to decide what you think. The Bible also never gives us the motive for why that old prophet lied to the man of God. But we could conjecture that perhaps he was an advisor to King Jeroboam who wanted to discredit the man of God. Or perhaps it was less nefarious and he was just curious and really wanted to spend some time with the man of God, so he told a lie. The writer of 1 Kings 13 doesn't make it clear what the old prophet's motive was or whether he was a false or true prophet, because that's not the point the writer is wanting us to understand through the story being shared. The center of this story is the man of God. He had been given a vital mission. It was to try to return King Jeroboam and, by extension, the ten tribes he led to following God. King Jeroboam was leading Israel away from relationship with God, and God wanted them back because he knew the misery not following him would cause. He knew it would lead to babies being used to sacrifice. It would lead to injustice. It would lead to murder and other dark places. But most importantly, it would lead away from an eternity spent with God. God placed his trust in this prophet and sent him to give a message and a sign that would leave no doubt in King Jeroboam or the people's minds that God was speaking to them and the power that God has. The man of God fearlessly discharged his responsibility. He faithfully declined the bribe the king offered him and followed God's instructions to the letter until he met the old prophet. So, why did he fail with the old prophet? There's an important lesson for us here that the writer of 1 Kings wanted to make clear always ask God for yourself. The man of God falls for a trick that is ageless. He's on his guard with the bad guy, King Jeroboam, but as soon as he thinks he's around someone that's like him, a good guy, he lets his guard down. Did you notice in the story how the old prophet said, "'I'm a prophet like you?' One of the first principles of persuasion and propaganda is to create commonality. People are much quicker to trust people who look like them, have a background like them, work in the same field, are conservative or liberal like them. You get the picture. After creating commonality, the old prophet tells his whopper about an angel appearing to him and telling him the man of God needed to come to his house for a meal. Now that the man of God was away from Jeroboam, he let his guard down. Finally, being with a fellow prophet who spoke the language of prophets was all he needed to be convinced. Here's the problem. He never said, wait a minute. What you're telling me is in direct contradiction to the instructions I received from God, Let me ask him for permission before I do what you are suggesting. If he had asked, God would have told him the truth, and he would have had a safe journey home. Based on my research and the clues in the text, I believe that the old prophet had been a legitimate prophet at one time, but had gone the way of the prophet Balaam. It appears very possible that he was an advisor to King Jeroboam and wanted to discredit this bold man of God by getting him to break one of the commands God had given him. I think it's significant that the writer of 1 Kings very specifically points out that the old prophet's sons told him what the man of God had said at the altar with Jeroboam. And the old prophet lies to get the man of God to break the command about what she'd been told. I think his plan was to go to King Jeroboam and say, that guy had a meal with me after he told you God had told him he couldn't eat. Yeah, I know some weird stuff happened with your hand withering and the altar splitting in two. If this guy was really from God, he wouldn't have had a meal with me in direct contradiction to what he told you. We're on the right track here. You don't need to listen to him. Can you see the difficult spot this put God in? If he didn't do something, the message he had sent would be discredited, and an entire nation would have had an excuse to ignore his attempt to bring them back to himself. If we find what happened next hard to swallow— I know the loving, full of mercy and grace God that I and the man of God served found it difficult to swallow as well. When the lion God sent killed the man of God on his way home and never touched his body or killed the donkey, there was absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind about the truth of the man of God's message. Even the old prophet is forced to admit that the man of God's message would be fulfilled. He believed it so much that he buried the man of God in his own tomb. All this was a powerful statement to King Jeroboam from a prophet and advisor, the old prophet. When King Jeroboam ignores even that and continues on his destructive path, he's left with no excuse. God did everything possible to turn King Jeroboam and Israel back to himself. This is God's grace. Now, you may be thinking, but what about God's grace for the man of God? Well, this should be a lesson for us. Following God's directions matter. They have eternal consequences, not only for ourselves, but for others. When we ignore God's instructions to us or trust others instead of seeking God for ourselves, there can be very serious consequences. Now you're thinking, but there don't appear to be any consequences for the old prophet. Not Only was there no punishment for him mentioned, but even his bones aren't disturbed. Let's not forget that the Bible tells us God is just, and everybody will be accountable to God at the judgment. What happened to the man of God is not the worst thing possible. Seventh-day Adventists, we believe death is just a temporary sleep. Jesus said as much when he said not to fear those who can kill us, kill our body, but to have respect for God, who has the power to completely extinguish our soul. I have no doubt the man of God will be in heaven. The fact that he's called a man of God points to that. As for the old prophet, I have a few more doubts but it's not my job to judge him, especially when the only thing I know is one incident in his entire life. God has great mercy and grace for our mistakes. And while there can be consequences, God knows our hearts and we can trust him when it comes to our eternity. God's greatest desire is that as many people as possible spend eternity with him. So here are the two main lessons from this story. And I hope the answer to our first great question. Good people do bad things. Christian leaders make significant mistakes. That doesn't make it okay. It just means even good people are human and subject to all the frailties of human nature. Second, in the words of an old Russian proverb used famously by Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. We shouldn't become cynical and jaded, but we should take Jesus' advice and be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. The easy thing is to trust those with whom we share commonality or that we admire. I'm not telling you not to trust anyone and certainly not to not admire anyone, but I am telling you to check back in with God if they tell you to do something that's different from how God has been leading you. You can do that through prayer and Bible study. Jesus promises that all who truly seek will find, and we can trust Jesus and the Holy Spirit to guide us correctly. Family, may God bless you as you follow him. Thanks for the great question.
2: All right, let me see here. All right, it is time for the Q&A with Pastor Ken and, um, you guys can still submit questions. You guys are three minutes ahead of the online audience. So they're, they're still hearing that special music. So you can submit questions early. Just go to the uh, church website on wholelife.church slash live or go to Facebook and submit those questions now. Um, and, uh, well. I have a question of my own or just a clarification I'd like from Pastor Ken to start with. So, Ken, um, can you tell us a little bit about Balaam? You mentioned him in your sermon, but some people may not know that story from the Old Testament. Can you kind of briefly catch us up on who Balaam is?
1: Sure. Uh, Balaam is a prophet um, of God who was asked by a foreign king to curse the Israelites when they were going through uh, their journey towards the promised land. And at first he said he couldn't do it, but then he tried to find a workaround to it. And there is a a fairly well-known story about a donkey that starts talking um, uh, that uh, becomes a part of that story. But perhaps that's a uh, a sermon for another day. But that's the uh, story of Balaam. A a prophet of God, but kind of reluctant and unwilling.
2: So when I hear these stories, a lot of times I kind of say to myself, like, not so much, you know, like, um, well, I really just ask myself, how am I still alive sometimes when I hear these stories about a prophet doing, making one mistake and and they are, they are punished with death for it. Um, and along those lines, Jahimi online has a question about, what, was there a terrifying moment in your lifetime or in your ministry, like what the king had, where his hand was instantly frozen and then unfrozen? Do you have any moments like that in your life, Ken?
1: Um, I guess the first one that just comes to my mind is uh, I was riding in the passenger seat with a friend of mine uh, early on in my ministry. We were out doing something together, and I saw a red light probably— quarter of a mile away. It felt like, and I feared he was going to see it. So I didn't say anything. Um, and uh, so I don't particularly care for back tri- backseat drivers. So I just kept my mouth shut. And by the time I realized that he didn't see the red light, we were flashing into the intersection and we uh, T-boned another vehicle. And uh, we were going at a pretty decent rate of speed when we did that. And I, I remember um, after all the spinning and, you know, the sounds kind of stopped and everything's just stopping. I remember thinking I've killed somebody by not telling my friend that there was a red light there um, because the other car was off the side of an embankment. I heard a baby crying. Mm. Uh, and so that was a pretty traumatic moment in my life. And then the relief, came after that when it turned out that everybody walked away from that accident. Nobody had to go to the hospital. Um, but it was, it was a terrible, it was a terrible moment. He was driving. So technically it was his fault, but I saw the problem and I didn't do anything about it. And, uh, that, that, that really stuck with me a little bit in life.
2: Yeah. Any car accident can be pretty traumatic. I know for sure. From my own experience too. Um, Trofina asks a question, how come after having his hand withered and the altar split, Jeroboam still didn't repent? Wouldn't that have made the man of God's efforts for nothing? And this is a pretty wild story. And overall, it feels like a lot of like, what?
1: Yeah, you know, I they, that's such a great question. Um, I think that maybe as a pastor, sometimes we can relate to this a little bit more maybe than than. Than everybody does. Um, there's times as a pastor where I really wonder if my sermons have any point and whether they're really making a difference because I don't see the change that I think ought to be happening on the timeline that I think it ought to be happening on. Um, so I don't think it's pointless because I think that the point is not the result. It's what God is asking you to do. And God had asked that man of God, to do something. And he he did what he was asked to almost. And, uh, and so there are times where I think that we need to understand that God's grace and mercy, that God goes all out for people who are very unlikely to change. But God doesn't say, well, I know you're not going to change, so I'm not going to try. God gives us every opportunity. And that's what I think was happening with Jeroboam
2: and i had I will ask the last question it's one of my questions as well, but um is it is why does God give us such weird rules like don't eat this or um, don't eat until you return, take a different road back, and then the consequences can be so harsh for those like very specific rules
1: you know I think this one comes down to a lot like when my daughter was little and my son was little, I had asked them to do things that made zero sense to them it just they it was like, why do I need to do this? As an adult, as a grown-up, I could see the danger. I could see why I was asking. I had a reason for it. Um, but from their viewpoint, from their perspective, they couldn't understand. I think sometimes when we see some of the commands that God gives in the Bible, that's we're little children. We don't, we don't understand the bigger picture of what God is trying to accomplish. We don't understand everything to it. But what I become convinced of is that if God asks it, he's doing it the same way that I ask of my little kids to do something, that I'm asking it because I love them. And I want their best good. And I know that can be a little hard to swallow when you see this man of God dying. You think, well, that doesn't seem very loving of God and and everything else. But again, I think that we have to trust God and understand that the last thing God ever wants to do is cause hurt and harm in our life. And yet God has purposes that are big and important. And if we're a part of his story, we trust him with our story.
2: All right. Well, and if any of you have any more questions, please feel free to post those in the chat or email them to the staff. Um, we are continuing the series of great questions. And I have this envelope. I haven't opened it yet with next week's great question, which Ken will be answering, uh, uh, talking about in the next sermon. Awesome. Here we go. All right. Um, question, great question number two. It seems like our world and even Christian organizations give rewards on a merit-based system. What someone can or cannot accomplish. How can we as Christians, and especially those of us who work in various organizations, offer the grace God has given us to others? So how can we still offer grace in and, and a merit-based system? That's an interesting question. I have some thoughts on that myself, but we'll we'll hear about that next week.
1: Great question. I'll call you up and get your thoughts on that, Stanley.
2: (laughs) All right. Awesome. So thank you so much, Ken. And if you have any other questions, we'll be answering them in the podcast, which is called This Is Whole Life, and it's available everywhere that podcasts can be heard. Thanks.
1: Hey there, family. I wish I could be with you in person, um, but I am glad for technology that allows me to be there with you. I hope that you know that you are loved. I love you. Your family and whole life loves you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stories of the Bible that don't make sense, that cause us to look a little deeper and try a little harder to know who you are. Help us to always um, give grace. Help us to also be wise. Help us to always check in with you. And check it to see what you're asking us to do, rather than just going on the belief that somebody is a good person, so we can trust them. All right. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. We pray these things in your name, Amen. All right, church family, love you. Have a great week.
0: Hi, this is Randy McGray, podcast producer and host here at Whole Life Church loving people into a lifelong friendship with God is our mission at the whole life church and our podcasts speaking of grace and its companion 15 with Andy Randy and Jeff are designed to help facilitate conversations that help us grow together in that pursuit now that you've heard the message for this week don't forget to check out the whole life takeaways for this message swipe up in today's show notes and join the conversation Speaking of conversations, each Wednesday morning we take a closer look at the week's message. That's right, the one you just listened to. We discuss practical ways to apply spiritual lessons and ask honest questions about the issues we face as Christians, all focused through the lens of grace. Your voice is a welcomed addition to that conversation. We encourage your thoughts and your questions by sending a voicemail or text to 407-965-1607 or send an email to podcast at wholelife.church. You can find everything podcast-related on our website, wholelife.church slash podcast. And plan on spending every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning with us as we bring you the Whole Life Church inspiration you love straight into your headphones. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.